Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. I'm really honored to have as my guest for this interview, Stan Groff. Many of us owe our existence at this conference to the work that he pioneered in the 50s and 60s without really even knowing that we do. He's such a pioneer in the research and the healing and transformative potential of non-ordinary states of consciousness. His, his groundbreaking theories influenced the integration of Western science with his brilliant mapping of the transpersonal dimension. He's one of the founders and chief theoreticians of transpersonal psychology and received an honorary award for major contributions to the field of transpersonal psychology. Really, uh, thank you for doing this, Stan. Thank you for having me. And you wouldn't believe that this guy is 85 years old. I, I was eating and talking and carrying on with him last night, and he is clear as a bell, absolutely interested in all the stuff that's going on around him. Fire dancers last night, he was getting there, taking pictures of the fire dancers. Boy, if, if I am as clear as you are when I'm 85, half as clear. I'm 84. Oh, 84. <laughs> no wonder. Anyway, whatever you've been doing, it's had a good effect on you, obviously. And so let's hear about what you've been doing and how you got started doing it. Initially, I had no idea that I would go into psychiatry. I was very interested in painting, drawing. I wanted to work in animated movies. And just before I made the commitment to work in the film studios in Prague, a friend of mine handed me uh, introductory lectures to psychoanalysis by Freud. And I started reading it in the evening, and I couldn't put it down. I read through the night, and within two days, I decided it's not going to be animated movies. I'm going to be a psychoanalyst. In Czechoslovakia and most other countries, you have to have a medical degree or psychological degree. So I had to enroll into the medical school, and then started working as a student volunteer when I was in my fourth year. And this was the time when LSD came to the psychiatric clinic where I was working. This came from Sandoz Pharmaceutical Company with a big box full of ampules and LSD-25. There was a letter that said this is a very interesting investigative experimental substance which was discovered practically by accident, you know, the laboratories of Sandoz by Dr. Albert Hoffman who actually intoxicated himself when he was producing it. And it gave the whole story, and Albert Hoffman synthesized it in 1938 as part of a study of ergot alkaloids. He took the lysergic acid and was adding different side chains, and so LSD was 25th derivative. And there are three major, or there were at the time, three major indications. One was gynecological bleeding, and contraction of the uterus. The second one was sort of opening the arteries in the brain for geriatric population. And the third one was migraine headaches. You mean he was hoping to treat all these things with LSD? Is that, what do you mean? No, major this was in ergot alkaloids, okay? Uh -huh. And he was, he was trying to create another derivative that would be more effective and less side effects. So LSD was number 25. And so he synthesized it in 38 and he sent it to the pharmacological studies and it came back, not particularly interesting substance. Uh, research discontinued. And those of us who knew Albert, uh, you know, heard the story again and again. He said he continued adding some other side uh, groups, but they couldn't get uh, rid of this LSD-25, so they must have overlooked something. He had this inner drive and after five years, it was so strong that he decided to do another sample, send it back for you know, better examination. And of course, they wouldn't have found anything in rabbits and rats. Yeah. But it just happened to intoxicate himself when he was making it. He started feeling strange. You know, there were waves of uh, emotions, uh, seeing colors, distorted shapes. And he thought he was going crazy. And then when he came down in couple, maybe two and a half hours, he felt there had to be some better explanation. And so he decided to test it. And two days later, he took, he said, being a very conservative person, I took uh, just a minuscule, just an infinitesimal dose, or what I thought was a minuscule <laughs> dose, 
and the dose was 25% of the dosage of other ergot alkaloids. This was 250 micrograms. I don't know how many of you relate to the dose, but when we were working with Solidity, this was like a high dose. You had to prepare people, usually men and women, sort of sitting and then keeping people overnight. So he took it, he prepared his work for the day. He thought maybe every half an hour he would close his eyes and see if anything was happening. Of course, in 45 minutes, his state came with vengeance and he couldn't work. He asked his assistant to take him home. And this was 1943, it was time, so there was restrictions for using cars. And so people were using bicycles in Basel. And there's this great description of Albert bicycling, you know, through the streets of Basel, 250 micrograms in his <laughs> And so he came home and felt terrible. He felt he was dying. His uh, neighbor was a witch and was hexing him. So he asked the assistant to call the doctor. And the doctor came. He was not dying anymore. He now had uh, went through experience of birth. He was now a newborn with wonderful feelings, feeling that a lot of his problems were sort of washed away. And this was the beginning of another phase in his life. So then he sent this report to his boss, and the boss happened to have a son who was a psychiatrist in Zurich, and so he did a pilot study and published it. And this became overnight a sensation, and now Sandoz was sending it to different research institutes, universities, even individual therapists, and they were saying, would you work with this? Because we feel it could have some relevance for psychiatry, for psychology. And they actually gave two tips in this letter. They say, we feel that this could be used as experimental psychosis. You know, you would give it to quote-unquote normal people. You would do all kinds of tests before, during, and after. And uh, you would see what's happening in the body when the psyche is so profoundly affected. And it's always great to have a model in science. But then there was a second tip that kind of became my uh, karma or destiny said it would also be possibly used as a kind of unconventional training tool that psychiatrists, psychologists could take it and spend like six hours in a world that seemed to have some similarity with the world of their patients. And I was at that time sort of dis disenchanted with psychoanalysis, of course, you know, I became one of the early volunteers. And I had a session that just changed my life professionally. Is that the one with the strobe Personally, lights? Personally, in a few hours. The strobes? You had an LTC? I, I described it a little in, the, in my talk. This was combined with a stroboscopic, right. stroboscopic light. It was an enormous, you know, cosmic, mystical experience. And so when I came, came down, I was just so impressed that I said, this, I'm stuck with psychiatry, and this, this is by far the most interesting thing you can do as a psychiatrist. You know, I had some experience with psychoanalysis, and uh, there was no comparison. Even retrospectively, you know, I spent seven years in psychoanalysis, you know, and I loved every, every minute of it, playing with my dreams and finding sort of deep meaning in, in each slip of my tongue and so on. But if you ask me, did it change you? I said, well, you know, I changed, but seven years is a long time. It changed anyway, and there was no convincing evidence for me there was some kind of connection to what I was doing on the couch and any kind of changes. If you ask me, did this your first LSD session change it? I said, wow, you know, I was one person when I walked in in the morning and then I was somebody else walked out of that room. There was no question what did it. I mean, I, yeah. and so that was the beginning, you know, that then uh, became, I say, my passion, you know, my profession, my vocation. And for 60 years, I have done very little now professionally that would not be related in one way or another to non-ordinary states. Yeah. A friend of mine who lives in an ashram in the Himalayas wrote me about a year ago, said I should interview. And well, there's one little sentence that jumps out at me here. He said, the more you expose yourself to his writings, yours, the broader his intellectual universe reveals itself to you. And I have that feeling with you that you're this kind of vast reservoir of, of um, you know, possible points of discussion, and I, I want to make sure that we extract from it the, the most salient and interesting and important 
points that we can possibly talk about in 45 okay. minutes or so that would have the greatest benefit and impact on our audience. So okay. guide me along as we do this uh, so you know, I don't ask irrelevant questions that waste your time. With that in mind, uh, keep telling us the story of your progression, but let's sort of have as our goal takeaway points that people listening can use to transform their own lives. So that's not really a question. But so what's the question? <laughs> yeah, I guess, I mean, I took LSD first in 1967, and it was a real eye-opener for me. I mean, the main realization being that the world is dependent upon how we perceive it. It's not like everybody perceives it the same. I mean, having you know, been up all night tripping, went into a donut shop in the morning, and I was just astounded to see that the donut-selling ladies we're seeing a very different world than I was. And I thought, that's it. You have to change your consciousness. You don't just change the world. You have to change your perspective. Mm. And yet, within the course of a year, I had been arrested twice and dropped out of high school, and, and my life was a mess. And I realized that if I continued that way, I, it was, I was going to destroy it. Consequently, uh, well, even then, LSD was illegal, and all other drugs are illegal. And probably you would say that it's too bad that they're just sort of, there's this blanket prohibition of them, because if they were used responsibly, which I hadn't been doing really, they could be of tremendous therapeutic value. So talk about that. In an ideal world, if you were writing the laws and uh, designing therapeutic uh, approaches using LSD, and we'll also talk later about holotropic breathwork, how would you see therapy using those tools being practiced, and what outcomes would you see from it? Well, you talk about uh, the experience of the donut, okay, which means that you did it with your eyes open, and at least when this happened, yeah. with the donut. So it's very interesting, interesting for artists, you know, the changes of the environment. I have in my, uh, this new book, Understanding the Modern Consciousness Decision, Understanding of Art, some examples how it can change your perception of the external world. But there you get the mixture of what you see out there and then what you are projecting. The real journey starts when you keep your eyes closed. In other words, we, when we do it therapeutically, you do it with eye shades, you do it with headphones and music, and then you just get messages, just pure messages from your unconscious. And then it becomes an you know, extremely important investigative tool. Uh, I compared it in my early writings to microscope, to telescope. I mean, you can study certain processes which you cannot study unless uh, you would work with people where the unconscious opens up spontaneously. But psychiatrists don't do it. We put people on tranquilizers rather than studying what's coming out of these spontaneous episodes. Mm -hmm. so, so anyway, so we had like a telescope or a, or a microscope. So I initially started, uh, I think for about two years, we were doing laboratory studies what happens, you know, in the body. We would bother people, you know, in these uh, LSD sessions, drawing samples of blood and having them pee every uh, hour and, you know, psychological tests and so on. And we were doing it to ourselves as well. And those are very different kind of experiences. But then I noticed something really amazing, which was incredible inter-individual and intra-individual variability. So if um, this... 50 people take LSD with the same dosage under the same circumstances, everybody would have completely different session. And if you take it repeatedly, each session will be different. And I realized at that point, we were not doing pharmacology. We would not have pharmacology if substances would uh, respond like LSD. If you, you have to know somehow what you want to achieve. You want to have people to throw up, you give them apomorphine and a significant number of them have to throw up as a result of it, or sleeping pills. So you, you have to have some sense what's going to happen. With LSD you had no idea what's going to happen. Anything could happen, but nothing had to happen. At that point I realized we were studying the psyche. We were studying the psyche with a powerful catalyst. At that point I took it back to the clinical work and sort of doing... We, we could give a whole series of sessions usually medium dosages. One of my clients called this, uh, we were doing onion peeling of the psyche, going layer after layer. And so you could get a sense of what is the content of the different layers, how things are interconnected, how uh, the unconscious content relates to symptoms, at which point you start moving the symptoms. They intensify or they disappear and so on.
I brought uh, into this work my medical study and my psychoanalysis. And according to Freud, the newborn is a tabula rasa. There's not supposed to be anything <laughs> that precedes birth. The psychological history starts after you're born. And that proved to be a very poor tool for this kind of work because nobody that I worked with would stay in that playground uh, defined by Freudian analysis. And people started moving into really scary areas where you know, they are trapped and they were dying and going crazy. They will never come back. And then uh, getting the insights that uh, the only logical explanation is they must have been back to their biological birth. So I had this tremendous challenge to accept the fact that there is, there is a record of birth, because according to my teachers, you know, this couldn't be the case, because the, the uh, uh, brain of the newborn was not supposed to be mature enough. It was not what's called myelinized. And so this, this meant to do observations that were in serious conflict with what these authorities were saying. And if you are a medical student or a sort of fresh-baked psychiatrist, you have a lot of respect to authorities. Those people sort of, you know, have written books and so on. So I would start questioning my, my sanity and, all, you know, my observations. And it took quite a while, including my own experiences, where I said, no, it's there. I mean, it's, it's up to the f neurophysiologist to find where it's recorded. It's, there is a very uh, highly organized organ, the brain of the newborn. So maybe it's in the subcortex, maybe it's in the spinal cord, maybe it's in every cell of the body. Because, as we knew also from biology, there's something like protoplasmatic memory and so on. And so I sort of became comfortable with this and, you know, able to. People say, oh, I'm dying. I say, let yourself die. You know, this is not real dying. This is going to be it's part of a rebirth process. Let's go, you know, let's do it. And I was, I was doing this myself as I was working with people. But then just as I got sort of comfortable with birth, then it started going beyond that. And I, we started seeing past lives and we started seeing arch archetypal experiences, you know, people going into collective unconscious and so on. And uh, so I realized, okay, I have this new tool, and if you have a new tool, uh, it opens up new areas of studies, so I'm going to map this. So I started mapping uh, where people were going. It took about three years to get together uh, this extended cartography, where I felt comfortable that at least, not specifically, but each major category of experiences was on that map. And then I saw this is a new map, you see, for psychiatry. Then I realized this was not a new map at all. This was actually a very old map because there were elements of it that were like part of shamanic geography. A lot of it was overlapping with the great spiritual philosophies of the East, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, and so on. So I realized this was rediscovery of some very ancient maps of consciousness that we have sort of rejected somehow uh, and even ridiculed uh, during the Industrial Revolution. So what, what happened uh, 300 years ago is that major discoveries were, were made uh, through reason, you know, through science, and it was turning into uh, technological advances and started to change the world. And there was this uh, tremendous excitement about what the reason can do. And uh, actually, I don't know how many of you know that uh, this time Notre Dame, for a number of years, was uh, renamed, was the, was the Temple of Reason. So suddenly, reason was this, uh, you know, was, uh, the most powerful sort of uh, tool that we have. And then everything that was not rational was labeled as irrational, as a kind of embarrassing leftover from dark ages, from the, from the childhood of few many now we are sort of you know we are sort of uh, uh, rational rational beings you know with a, a scientific worldview and so on uh, so the error which was made is to confuse what is not rational with what is irrational so the mystics are not irrational they are transrational the, the mystic doesn't have if they completed that transformation process, they don't have problems of crossing the street and going, you know, get, the, get their dinner and so on. They, they can function uh, rationally, but they had experiences of certain dimensions 
that other people have not experienced. And if you discover a new realm, you have to somehow expand your cartography. So when, uh, you know, in the 15th century, when Columbus discovered uh, uh, new, the new world, you have to, people had to expand their worldview. Or when we started doing, uh, you know, astronomical explorations, our understanding of the, of the world is expanding. We have, to, we have to sort of add that new knowledge. So you said it took you about three years to map out the thing reasonably well. What, can you describe that map to us a little bit? The what? The, the cartography of, of, you know, the psyche yeah. and of, of transpersonal states. Yeah, well, the, the cartography, the new cartography shared with traditional psychology, psychiatry, uh, the uh, sort of biographical, uh, postnatal, recollective level, what happens to you after you're born. Uh, but there were two major uh, realms which had to be added. One is that I call perinatal. Peri means around. Uh, in uh, Greek, and natalis means pertaining to birth. So there's a, um, a record of experiences that happened to us before birth, uh, during birth, and then immediately uh, following birth. And uh, I actually found four experiential matrices when people were regressing into, into birth. Then uh, the very distinct kind of constellations of experiences characterized by specific emotions, by specific uh, physical feelings, and each of them represented also a selective opening into uh, the next level, which was transpersonal, or the collective unconscious. Mm. So let's say you would experience yourself as fetus in what I call the second matrix, which is stuck in the, in the womb. The uterus is contracting, the cervix is not open, um, and you lose linear time. It feels like this will never end. And you can also be now tapping from the collective unconscious experiences of people being in dungeons or in a concentration camp or in a torture chamber on the Inquisition or being in a war where they are victimized, where they sort of have no way of fighting the enemy. When you get to the, what I call the third matrix, when you are now the cervix is open and you're moving through it, the images would be, for example, images of revolution enough of the oppression now we are going to mobilize ourselves and we are sort of um, you know um, defeat the uh, the tyrant the oppressor and we all breathe freely again and if you if you come out if you are reborn then the the images from the collective unconscious would be end of war victory and revolutions and so on so i'm not sure that i completely understand and maybe maybe some people listening won't too so let me throw in a question here. So are you saying that through perhaps LSD use under the research conditions that people remembered the birth process and, and that, that these um, various experiences of torture and, and revolution and this and that were accompanied that memory at various stages of the process of being born? Is that what you were saying? It's like you, you like tune into a whole uh, field which has a certain archetypal quality, you can think about archetypally, and within that field you, you can get some sample of experiences from your childhood, from your infancy, and then a specific perinatal matrix. Let's say if it's, a, uh, if it's an archetype of a victim, it will take you to the second matrix, where you're stuck in the womb. If it's the third matrix, then it's the, it's the movement out. And then you get, you get also um, maybe elements of uh, mythology. So for example, when you have the second matrix, you might get images from the Greek underworld. Sisyphus, These images are images people Sisyphus, are getting like, as yeah. they're on LSD having these memories of, of the birth process. They're getting images of the Greek underworld and this and that. Well, it's, it's, I wouldn't even call it memories because it's actually reliving. You're reliving I mean, you are, it. You're back there. It's, maybe even better way is that you're transcending time rather than tapping some kind of memory right. that are from the brain. And so what is the significance of the fact that these archetypal, uh, archetypal images are associated with various stages of the birth process? Why is that? You have to ask... Uh, <laughs> ask God. <laughs> you have to ask somebody else. Yeah. You know, science can much better answer the question how rather than why. Yeah. 
so we have described, you know, a lot of the mechanism, how it happens, how things, which things go together and so on. Okay. Then also the fact that the, the, the matrices seem to be a major source of psychopathology. Mm. This is a reservoir of very difficult emotions, very difficult sensations, physical sensations, pain, choking, uh, and so on. So it's uh, in connection with postnatal experiences, it can uh, sort of feed various emotional psychosomatic problems. And if you reverse it, if you go back and you now relive it, that is major, major therapeutic effect. So things like uh, claustrophobia, things like depression, feeling in a no-exit hopeless situation. There's a pocket of violence, which is the response to the choking and to the encroachment of the, of the uterus and so on. Mm. So uh, working with those perinatal energies is a major, major uh, therapeutic impact. And also, I believe now that the, uh, the reason that we have the world we have, if you look what's happening in the Middle East, uh, you know, the um, Holocaust, the uh, uh, Stalin's archipelago, you know, what the Tibetans did for, uh, what the Chinese did to the, to the Tibetans and so on, uh, those don't come from uh, problems with nursing or toilet training or seeing your parents having intercourse in the, in the bedroom. I mean, this is, this is a heavy-duty, intense emotional and physical energy. Mm. So those, the sources of that kind of violence seem to be uh, from, from birth, from these hours that we spent in the, in the birth canal, and then further beyond it, I, I haven't yet mentioned, uh, there's a vast domain that we call transpersonal now, which is the you know, the collective unconscious, uh, uh, both historical and archetypal and so on. So there are archetypal sources of that kind of a violence. There is the archetype of apocalypse, you know, uh, or the twilight of the gods, the Ragnarok, the Nordic. Uh, so what we see manifested in the world is, is does not come from, from our childhood, from infancy. The, the war that, you know, or violent movement that sweeps the whole nation. Uh, I mean, those are sort of forces that you cannot explain by psychoanalysis. So you're and saying you, that you, world events such as wars and uh, Armageddon, I mean, not Armageddon, the, the, the Holocaust and, um, you know, what's happening in Syria and whatnot. That happens when you mobilize these deeper levels in the, yeah. in the psyche that, psych, that psychiatry does not recognize. So these are like uh, representations of archetypes in collective consciousness. Could, is, is, yes, that's yes. what we're saying. And s sort of like a boil on the skin is a representation of some impurity in the blood or something. So we, re we realize that the... And so how would we purify the blood, so to speak? How would we purify co collective consciousness so as not to have these symptoms cropping up? Well, fortunately, we have ways of dealing with these contents in the unconscious, but it will not be talking on the couch. You will not talk out your birth, you know. Right. Uh, so you would have to move to experiential therapy. So, so you know, the psychedelics would be a, a, a tool par excellence. You can you can access those energies and you can process there, uh, and you can do it with with breath work. You can yeah. do some of the shamanic techniques can get you there. Because it would have to be done on a mass scale, would it not, to, to affect some significant change in the whole, the, the whole world? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I have seen it happening in many, many people individually. Now, whether this could be done on a large scale, and if we have enough time to do that, you know, yeah. I don't know. So, but um, that it's, I think it's probably the only hope that we have to transform somehow humanity. The history of humanity is all you know, violence and uh, greed, I mean. Uh, yeah. And now we have, uh, we have sort of uh, incredibly powerful weapons and we have still mentality of the Stone Age. So, you know, we are not sort of doing it with sticks now, we are doing it with nuclear weapons. And so unless we find a ways of identifying the problem and tools to change it, we are not going to make it as a species and we take a few species with us. If you look at things like what happened in the oil in, in the Gulf, Mexican yeah. Gulf, the oil spill, or right. in, in Japan, or Chernobyl, you know, and so Fukushima. on. And it's not even war, this is just, just accidents of how we live in the industrial age. Yeah, there's 150 to 200 species go extinct every day. These, yeah. you know. 
eventually, I guess, you got stymied by legalities and you know in your use of psychedelics as a therapeutic tool, and you ca you came up with holotropic breathwork as an alternative. Is that a, a fair snapshot uh, summary of what ended up happening? Yeah, yes. Yes. You yeah. get to a situation where we did not have the. Per I, I went to a place called Esalen Institute to write a book. And I was doing uh, workshops, trading it for a place room to and stay board, and yeah. room and board, yeah. And people were not happy with me and uh, with Christina, we were doing it together. And they said, well, it's great to hear about all these fantastic experiences, but can't we do something? Don't you, don't you have something on the side, you know? And I said, well, you know, as excellent people would not be happy, I would be doing things that are illegal. And then we started thinking, how, what, what can we do? And I had some memories from uh, the psychedelic work that became very relevant. You know, initially when we were doing psychedelic sessions, we had no idea how the session will end. Sometimes it ended like with Albert. People sort of felt reborn and this was the beginning of a new phase in their life. Sometimes it wasn't so great. Sometimes it opened up a new area and it didn't complete in the session. And so, uh, initial strategy was you have to wait 10 days because there's a certain uh, biochemical tolerance. You don't, if you take LSD the next day, you don't get the same kind of a reaction. So you wait 10 days and we ran another session and you know, pray, believe, hope that it's going to end up better. And then a couple of things happened. I remember the first uh, patient is coming down, is extremely angry. The, the drug was wearing off, he was really very furious and a pain in the shoulder. And he said, could you go and do something with my shoulder? If, if I could get it you know, through that, I would feel better. So I said, well, sure, we're trying. So I go and push and said, not enough, you know. Okay, not enough. So my, my thumb was like this. And then finally he started sort of growling. He started coughing. He started screaming. And, and moving, shaking, and we did it for a while, and he was relaxed and was fine. And the next time it was uh, a nausea, it was a female patient coming down, terrible nausea. I say, where is it? And I said, I sort of, you know, pushed a little, and this projectile vomiting would come, and within, you know, within minutes she was in a great place. So I realized that we can do something to actually help the integration of the session. And so I started doing it routinely. We do it now in the breathwork sessions. Uh, and as I was doing it, several patients started breathing fast. It's called saccadic breathing. And it's actually used in some spiritual practices like bastrika and siddha yoga. It happens spontaneously too. It happens yeah. to me almost every day when I meditate, the breathing yeah. starts. And there's a, about 10 to 15% of the people have spontaneous episodes of Hyperventilation brings a lot of symptoms. There's a book by Fried called Hyperventilation Syndrome showing all the diagnoses that people get uh, as a result of faster breathing because it's not the breathing, it starts bringing up things from your history, from yeah. your psychosomatic, uh, psychosomatic history. So then when, when the patient started doing the saccadic breathing, they told me that the breathing Brought, brought them back into the session. The drug was wearing off, but the breathing suddenly intensified. I started bringing things from the unconscious. So I knew that, that uh, there's some connection between faster breathing and bringing up things from the unconscious. So this is what we started experimenting with at SLN. We started sort of uh, let people lie down and do faster breathing. We're playing some, some music, and we found out that people can have powerful experiences. And then there was one session where uh, we had 46 people, and people come to SLN from all over the world, like South America, you know, Australia, Europe, and so on. And I was working in the garden, and I threw off my back. And there was just no way I could imagine going and work with people, you know. We had a big king-sized bed, and, uh, and Christina moved on one side. I was just like getting a dagger. So what are we going to do? You know, 46 people, we can't send them home. So we said, well, we'll let them do it together. We just sort of walk around and be supervisors, you know, we're going to just tell them what to do. And the session was such a success that we never did it differently. Not only, you know, just about everybody in the room had powerful sessions, 
But the sitters told us what, how they enjoyed it, what an incredible privilege it was to be there in such an intimate process with another person, how much they learned. And so this was, this was the, really the beginning. Then we didn't uh, do it differently since that time. Christina's uh, father was a musician, so she became the one who developed the, the initial concept of music. We started going to anthropological archives where native cultures develop uh, sound technologies, you know, uh, chanting or drumming or rattling and so on, that is designed to, uh, to induce an unordinary state, to, to get people into a trance. I was thinking about it when we were dancing around that fire, you know, how many people were already sort of almost in process. So these cultures uh, use this technology not to entertain people, like our artists, we entertain people, but they were looking for what works. So they empirically developed drumming rhythms that can change the uh, synchronization, desynchronization in the brain. This has been tested in laboratories, like Michael Harner did it in the laboratory. Mickey Amaya. Hart wrote a book called Drumming at the Edge of Madness, yeah. Drummer for the Grateful Dead. Yeah. yeah, and so we then we combined, you know, the, the breathing and this kind of a evocative music. When the breathing itself does not complete, then we go to the body work. We ask people what is happening in, in their body, and then we do something to intensify it, hold the tension there, and then ask people to express emotions or let their body do whatever it wants to do. Yeah. And then we do it until there is a closure to that process. I've heard criticisms of holotropic breathwork that it's just hyperventilation, but I've read so many accounts of profound, dramatic experiences that people had and transformations and everything. Yeah. So, you know, we won't even spend any time talking about those criticisms. And obviously, from what you've just described, it's more than just breathing. It's also associated with music and some kind of physical intervention yeah. or manipulation. And then we do sharing in groups and then uh, ma mandala drawing. People, people draw also. What kind so of it became a powerful, powerful non-drug uh, non technique. Yeah. You know? Proof of the pudding is in the eating. What kind of results have you seen? Just some case in, cases in point, you know? Some. You see, I, I have not had a chance to do this in a clinical setting. Like uh -huh. the, all my psychedelic work was done in a clinical setting. We had studies where you have uh, uh, the, um, actually, in um, the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, the, the condition of the uh, National Institute of Mental Health was that we would have a group of people who evaluate the results who had never taken LSD. Mm. Because the idea was when you take LSD, your judgment is not sort of reliable biased, anymore. Yeah. So we had a one group that, that saw the patients, that they, they put the, you know, the questionnaires and stuff, then that passed, uh, passed the patient to us. All of us had psychedelics. We felt Unless you take psychedelics, you have no idea what you're what you're working with, and so this was a this was a condition. It was part of the training, but then we saw the patient after the session a couple of times, and then the follow-up, the evaluation was done again by the group with these virginal minds. Uh, okay, and the, the results were quite quite amazing. Yeah, uh, and uh, with the the breathwork, we see major major healing, major changes. And there are some people whom we trained who have the, the possibility of being in a clinical yeah. setting. We never mixed it with uh, therapy. We don't use diagnosis or anything. We just have this, a group of people gets together and they have an agreement that they go through self-exploration and we just work with whatever comes up. You know, people have cleared asthma. People have seen 15 cases that uh, renal disease disappeared. Uh, you know, they, yeah, the circulation problems. Circulation and, in the t fingertips and all. Yeah, yeah, people, sometimes even you have skin eruptions happening because there's such bad circulation. Mm -hmm. And behind it is a bioenergetic blockage. If that opens up, then the circulation opens. Uh, yeah. Psychosomatic pains can be, you know, a combination of the breathing and body work and expressing the emotions which are behind it. Mm -hmm. You can clear, uh, you know, chronic pains. Uh, sometimes you can, you can do a lot of work even on pain which was originally uh, due to trauma. Even if it's, uh, if it's already healed structurally, you have still pains in that, and part of it is like withheld energy. So, so part of it can be 
handled by, again, by breathing and body work. You can release chronic pain. Both with psychedelics and with holotropic breathwork, when, when I think about it, when I hear you talk about it, um, I think about the fact that we have a subtle physiology, not just our gross physiology that, you know, we can, you know, examine through autopsies or, you know, something, but there's this whole system of nadis and, and shushumna and chakras and all this business, and, um, and there, I'm sure that there's a lot going on with all that and that you've, uh, I mean, have you tried to define what these practices do in terms of, have you tried to sort of map that against the, the knowledge of kundalini vidya, for instance, you know, with the whole yeah, subtle this physiology? Is, this is very real. This is not a Hindu or a Chinese fantasy. I mean, meridians and uh, chakras. I mean, you can, in a non-ordinary state, uh, you, can, you can experience uh, that subtle energy body. So when I talked about uh, Raynaud, when people have Raynaud disease, when, when they breathe, they develop tetany. And if you continue to breathe, then it resolves and suddenly the energy comes through and you get an energy field that you can, you can touch. I mean, you can, it's like playing with a ball of energy and you can experience that your energy field is way beyond the, the surface of your uh, skin. So if you see these uh, maps of nadis, for example, the, the, the yogis talk about 72,000 of nadis, uh, I don't know how they counted it, but they, they have the three major, you have the, the uh, Shushumna and the Ida and the, and the Pingala. I mean, this is all, this, you can experience your chakra, this is not uh, some kind of a fantasy that somebody has. You know. Yeah, I, I think and it, the yogis... And sometimes you can experience the, the energy flowing in chakras, through chakras, the nadis, and sometimes you can experience the meridians. I think I know the answer to this question, but if um, LSD were legal now, would you still use it in conjunction with holotropic breathwork, or do you feel like hol holotropic breathwork has proven so effective that you wouldn't even need um, to use the... Well, if you have, you know, if you have uh, LSD, I wouldn't use it in combination with the breathwork. But as I another would, modality, though, I would, I mean, as, yeah. I, as I mentioned it historically, I would use breathwork if the LSD session is not properly closed. I would not give people LSD and then have them breathe because if you want a bigger reaction, you just increase the dosage. No, I just mean as another tool in your toolbox, you know. Yeah. But it's a great tool. The breathing is a great tool to, to close the session properly, to reach a good integration. I would love to have, you see, if, if uh, I had the, the legal uh, situation, I would like to have a, a center where all these things would be available. Yeah. And you know, you would have Qigong or yoga, meditation in the morning, you could, you could have uh, Gestalt there, you could have holotropic uh, sessions there, you could have um, you know, MDMA, you could have uh, mushroom, mm -hmm. psilocybin, you could have LSD. And then choose, you know, people could experiment and see what's, what's best for them. There are people who would do holotropic breathwork, but they wouldn't, you know, approach the psychedelics with a 30-foot pole, you know. Mm. And, and sometimes when, when they do some, some inner work with the breathwork, then they would be ready. They already feel comfortable with non-ordinary state, and, and they would lose that fear. With... Uh Spiritual practice, you know, meditation and yoga and stuff. Uh, usually, the hope is that with enough of it, there will be um, a permanent transformation, such as awakening or enlightenment, or something that is not just going to be intermittent or you know wear off after an hour or two. In your mapping of transpersonal states and all, do you include something akin to enlightenment in terms of your own life? I mean, you've been going at this for 60 years or something. Do you, your day-to-day -day experience, how would you describe it? Do you feel that there's been a, a kind of a permanent shift that, you know, that's the basis of what, how you operate 24-7? In other words, a higher state of consciousness but that's been stabilized? Well, uh, you know, there are, there's, sort of, there's a difference between a, an experience and a, a state. Stages uh, and states. So, uh, you know, you can have powerful spiritual experiences psychedelic experiences or breastwork or, or in meditation and uh, it will be very very vivid when you are in that state 
but then it, it starts sort of subsiding. Yeah. And in my own experience, what never changes is once you get this alternative understanding of reality, philosophically, scientifically, never. I would never be able to go back to the, what Fritjof Capra called the Cartesian Newtonian. I have just experienced and seen too much that I, yeah. uh, I know that it's not the, what, what the world is like. Now, being in that, in that perception in which you got this information, stay there, that's a whole other, that is a whole other problem. And, uh, you know, we live in a culture that makes it very, very difficult to maintain that kind of con consciousness because of all the temptations that come, you know, now the last being the digital technology when it simulates almost like spirituality. You would have to be very advanced to be able to see what's happening on the other side of the world. And here you can, you know, look at your iPhone and get it. Or, and you can talk to people in Australia and so on. Um, so um, there are all kinds of cars and uh, movies and the temptations of this. So you understand why people go to this cave or they go to an, ash an ashram. Actually, the people who came who were very highly developed in uh, India, for example, or in Tibet, they didn't do that great when they came into our culture, when there was sex and, and money and uh, power and so on. You know, there were quite a few scandals. Yeah. So uh, let me ask a question of the audience, though. I mean, here we have maybe uh, 75 people in the room or something, um, many of, or if not most of whom have been doing some form of spiritual practice, perhaps for many, many years. Um, how many of you feel that as a result of that, you walk around all day long uh, in a very, with a very different state of consciousness or a very different perspective or, or quality of awareness than you would have had had you not been doing all that practice. And it doesn't just come and go, it's there all the time. How many? Okay, look at that. Yeah, so that was the gist of my question is, um, does it stick? And I'm sure it does. I mean, I know people who've done holotropic breath work and LSD for that matter, who feel like it not only transformed their intellectual understanding of what's possible, but made them a different person uh, irreversibly. Well, it is, you know, it is not easy to maintain that state, but uh, it becomes increasingly easy to get into the state. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I would uh, meditate, I, my, my mother took me to a group with a, a man called Paul Branton, who was a, you know, Branton, yeah. He was a, spent some time in Arunachala with Sharmana right. Maharshi, he was writing these popularizing books, and also Egypt. And she uh, was a group of the followers, and he would come and do meditate with them and have a kind of a uh, lecture, kind of a darshan situation. And she took me there when I was 13 years old, and I got fascinated. They had, uh, you know, Thakur and uh, Aurobindo and Maharshi, they're all the literature. Uh, but then uh, the, we were meditating, and I would sit there, oh, wow, boring, you know, so many interesting things I could be doing sitting on my ass here. But now, it, now it's a very, very natural uh, state for me. You know, I yeah. sit down, and in a very short time, I can get into you know pretty, pretty deep state, which I never could have done yeah. without psychedelics. And I bet you, as a result of everything you've done, when you're eating lunch or sitting on the toilet or whatever else you're doing, that you're in a different state, and you don't have to try to be in that state. It's stick. It's it's ingrained. Mm -hmm. But you can also do something that you do sort of meditation in action. I mean, yeah. you, can, you can say, now I'm going to be uh, washing dishes with another consciousness, or and I'm going to eat with another consciousness. Jack Cornfield was a great friend, you know, Vipassana teacher. We've done like 37-day uh, retreats together, combining Vipassana and, uh, and this uh, holotropic breathwork. And he does eating medication, meditation. meditation. You, yeah. you take a raisin, you know, and then you sort of, you look at it and you think, oh, where it came from, what was it was growing, and who, was, who were the people, and mm. the sun, uh, you know, and then uh, what it looks like, and, and then you slowly put it into your mouth and sort of do the first bite and, and you know, go through the whole process. I mean, you can do anything as a meditation, but normally our life is so demanding that it's, it's really challenging to stay in that state. 
Well, I think we'll have to leave it on that note. Um, I feel like I've just scratched the surface. There's so many things we could probably have a whole conference just with you asking you questions and having you say things. But this will have to be a taste for people. You have a website, stanislavgroff.com, which people can go to, I'm sure, to learn much more. And is, is there any other website that you would like to announce? There's one which is called holotropic.com, which is the, the one for the, uh, for the holotropic breathwork. And that's the spelled H-O-L-O-T-R-O-P-I-C dot com. Yeah. yeah. So there you would get all the information. Uh, the training that we do is the, consists of seven uh, six-day uh, modules, as we call it. Each mm -hmm. of them has certain kind of theoretical focus, and there's always a lot of individual work. People breathe and sit for each other and then learn how to work with the, with the group. And, uh, you don't have to commit to the training. You can come, you can do one, and if you like it, you take another one, and or you decide to go all the way. You can take it in any country. We have it now in, you know, we just had a trip in five countries in South America. This was going to teach for the training. Australia has the training. Um, yes, we have it in Russia, in Slovenia, Croatia, Spain, you know, a number of places. So if you, if you decide that you would like to experience holotropic breastwork with uh, Russians. Uh, or we, we now then may arrange, you know, we were in China, uh, which was amazing. We had two, two large breathwork in, in China. Nice. So it would, it's a very interesting to do this with people from other countries. Cultures. Great. Well, now, thank you. Let, let oh, me I'm just, sorry. Can I, do we have time to well, a sentence? No? A sentence, please, yes. Go ahead. So we did this uh, very, uh, very frequently before large international transpersonal conferences. It's amazing what it does with people, how boundaries, uh, you know, melt uh, down. Uh, countries that had uh, grudges against each other. Right. So Jews and, and Germans and uh, us and Germans and us and Russians and so on. We have all of a really heavy history. And when people look honestly at their own problems, people move and become sort of helpers. And the bonding that happens like in a very short time is unbelievable. That's great. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.